Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and try to find an answer. Uh, Caroline, we have spent the better part of a month now. Mm -hmm. Um, It will be just about a full month uh, after this week's show, trying to get to the bottom of what happened to Andrew and Abby Borden. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we left off last week, we were right in the middle of Lizzie's trial, Uh, Andrew's daughter, Abby's uh, stepdaughter, and no love lost between the two of them. Is that fair to say? Between Lizzie and... Abby. Abby, yeah, certainly. Um, Between her and Andrew, who knows? But yeah, there wasn't a, a lot of warm fuzzy feeling there but in the trial we had begun and we had ended with a a bad day for lizzie borden as it was termed when a lot of evidence was brought up against her in terms of finding a possible weapon and you know a lot of police testimony um so uh we know i think most of us listening uh, to this story know how it how it ends for Lizzie. So mm-hmm. um, obviously they weren't all bad days in court. What, what mm-hmm. comes next, Carrie? Well, after Liz- Lizzie's uh, horrible, no good, very bad day, the trial proceeded onward. At this point, it was time for the police witnesses to be brought to the stand. Well, I mean, some of them had already. Um, but Marshall Fleet was brought back to the stand to recall his discovery of the broken hatchet in the Borden basement. And this broken hatchet was thought to be the most likely culprit for being the tool that committed the dastardly deeds. Someone had tried to burn it, right? Or else it had been like under an ash pile. It had been covered in ash, or what appeared to be ash, whereas the other implements, other tools and things that were found in the Borden basement that hadn't been touched were just covered in dust. So it seemed like it was strangely, purposefully covered in the ash, and also the handle had been broken, and the break appeared to be a clean break in the wood. So almost like somebody purposely covered it up with ash afterward. Yes, and then the break was new. So, um, upon cross-examination, defense attorney George D. Robinson got Fleet to admit that he had found the hatchet on his second look in the cellar, uh, which he had originally said it was the first time he'd gone down. And he started to seize upon the apparent inconsistencies in Fleet's statements. Uh, Let's not. If I'm the defense team, I don't want to seize too much on inconsistencies in people's statements. Well, you do. So this is, we're still with the prosecution witnesses. And this is a police investigator who believes that Lizzie is guilty. So as a defense attorney, you do want to uh, <laughs> seize on that just because this is a prosecution witness. In most cases, I agree. But in, in this case, I might think that Lizzie's lawyer might find it a bad precedent to set that if someone changes their story from one time to another, yeah. uh, they're not to be trusted. Well, we'll get to how they deal with that later, but it's certainly on their minds. But here, this is just kind of too important not to bring up in the defense's eyes. Because earlier Fleet had stated that he thought there had been dust or, you know, the ash or whatever covering the broken end of the hatchet handle. But today he was testifying there was no ash on the break and it was totally clean, 
uh, as well as being new. So Robinson basically left Fleet pretty shook. He had started off as a pretty, you know, set, balanced witness. And I think he was really thrown off at Fleet um, Robinson pointing out his inconsistencies and things like that. And after that, he, uh, quote, dismissed the witness with a wave of his hand as one might flight away an orange after tasting it and finding it insipid. Oh, brutal, is, brutal, brutal. <laughs> that's what uh, one reporter wrote. And I just think insipid is just a funny way to describe an orange. I've never, I've never <laughs> once thought that an orange was insipid. I've heard of an annoying orange, never in an insipid one. Next up came Captain Philip Harrington, who described Lizzie's original pink wrapper dress that she had been wearing when the police arrived in such a specific manner. It was called creditable to a first class dressmaker. Um, we had we did hear from a listener on social yes. media whose name escapes me right now. But thank you very much. And uh, I, I think the wrapper is actually a bathrobe. Yes. Or, or some kind of house coat kind of thing and she also mentioned that it was something to do to uh iron your handkerchiefs back in the day so it's not that crazy that lizzie spent so much time doing that allegedly on the morning of the murders but harrington uh was able to recall the colors cuts fit and skirt of this dress down to the most minute detail which as you might remember was very unlike previous male witnesses who were basically like, I don't know, it was light, or maybe it was dark. It was a dress. Yeah. They just uh, had no thought to it whatsoever. But to be fair, I, if I try to describe the clothes anyone was wearing, I think that's that's where I would be. Sure. Uh, Lizzie apparently quietly laughed at just how unbelievably specific the testimony was. Yeah, Lizzie quietly <laughs> laughing has served you so well so far, mm -hmm. reputationally. Well, reporter Julian Ralph commented that Harrington could talk about dresses like an American worth or a female society reporter. Mm. Perhaps Harrington just had an eye for fashion, but many thought it more likely that he had actually been coached with the details ahead of time because prior prosecution witnesses had been a little foggy. And so we wanted to get this guy in there who knew exactly what the cut of the dress was. Maybe he was just up on ladies fashion. Maybe. Maybe it was a hobby. Harrington also added that during the initial investigation, he found a rolled up paper about 12 inches long and no more than two inches in diameter that had been burned in the stove earlier that day. This size corresponded well to the likely size of the missing hatchet handle, leading some to believe that maybe the paper was wrapped around the handle. Um, I th we know of a note that was hastily shoved into that same stove, don't we? Right, but this is like rolled up paper. Unfortunately for the prosecution, another witness would contradict that possibility and himself. Patrolman Michael Mullally stated that he had actually seen the broken off handle during the investigation in a box at the Borden home that contained other hatchets not thought to be the murder weapon. So right away, everyone's like, what? That... The handle exists. We thought it, we only had this piece. We couldn't find this other piece. We thought it was burned or something. Also, can we see the rest of this box of hatchets you guys <laughs> just dismissed? Right. Um, Mullally also said that he saw Fleet take out this broken off uh, handle and then put it back in this box. And this is the grandfather of Megan Mullally, correct? <laughs> well, I won't put that on him. But So this is really a bombshell 
in the courtroom and attorney Robinson demanded, where is it? Prosecutor Hosea Knowlton disavowed any prior knowledge of this possibly important piece of evidence and recalled Fleet to the stand. So now he's been contradicted and he has to come back up. And but he's had time for more coaching. So. Wow. Uh, he agreed that Mullally had been present when he found the hatchet, but denied ever finding any matching piece of handle. So now one of the witnesses was either severely mistaken or lying, and that didn't look good. And that wasn't at all expected by the prosecution. And they're both prosecution witnesses, right? Yes, I mean, and both policemen. To what end would one of them be lying? Right. As Julian Ralph wrote, the theory of the Commonwealth is that she took the hatchet after murdering her father, broke off the handle, burned it, and then cleansed the blade, rubbed it in ashes, and put it in a box in the cellar. But now there was confusion. If the handle had been there all along, then the hatchet that had been found might not have any great significance, might not be the weapon. The New York Times reported, quote, they nearly destroyed the government's hope of producing the instrument with which the deed was done because they hadn't officially admitted it to evidence at this point. Right. And now there's question as to whether it is even evidence. Well, there's apparently a dozen other hatchets floating around. Right. These contradicting statements and confusion over the very little evidence that had even been discovered threw the case into even sharper uncertainty. And it really reminds me of the O.J. Simpson trial because all of this Smith's handling of evidence and police misconduct, even if OJ did do it, and we, I think we all know how that ended, um, these issues would make anything in the investigation a question. And it did here. No matter how damning for Lizzie Borden some of the details appeared, some things now had question marks next to them, and the prosecution was not happy about that. Yeah, and the isotoners would not fit on Lizzie's hands, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think they would have been too big for her instead of too small. However, the broken hatchet was still the best option for a weapon, and so Knowlton and the prosecution moved forward with it. But first, the jury was removed for, from the courtroom so the lawyers and judges could deal with a very important issue, whether or not it should be allowed to admit Lizzie's inquest testimony into official evidence. And whenever there's questions about can we admit this to evidence? You take the jury out and you only talk to the judges. Right. Uh, what, it would normally be part of evidence, right? Yes. So, so what was the problem? Well, as we discussed in epi episode two of this series, the inquest made Lizzie look pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, that, that's her fault. <laughs> right. High on morphine or not, she contradicted herself multiple times, discussed how she didn't like her stepmother, and acted unlike one genuinely grieving might be expected to act. And again, everyone's different in extreme situations, but it didn't seem like she was acting as they thought she would have. So is this like in Liar Liar when he goes, Your Honor, I'd like that stricken from the record. And, and he goes, why? And he says, because it's devastating to my case. <laughs> A little bit. But really, the prosecution felt that the inquest testimony was extremely important to their case. And importantly, they also felt Lizzie had not been coerced or compelled, but she had been speaking freely. Because if she had been coerced, that would have posed a problem with admitting the testimony. Uh, it's something to do with not incriminating yourself. 
but the prosecution argued that she had actually voluntary te- voluntarily testified at the inquest, so her statements should be admitted to evidence. Yeah. The defense, uh, in liar-liar fashion, of course, vehemently disagreed. Robinson argued that actually her testimony was involuntary. She had been subpoenaed to appear at the inquest, and despite being under suspicion already for the murders, she was not cautioned about her right not to testify, which was guaranteed by both tradition and the Massachusetts Constitution. Keep in mind... So they didn't Mirandize her? No, that was like 75 years down the road. So that's not... A th- the Miranda law is not a thing. And not everyone had a clear image of their rights and legal situations. And Andrew Jennings, her lawyer, had not been permitted to speak for Lizzie at the inquest, which basically left her without legal representation in that situation. Though this was legal, you know, it's not like she was arrested and refused a lawyer. Uh, It made the issue much cloudier, considering that it had been obvious at the time that her arrest was imminent. In fact, uh, the chief officer or whoever who served her Uh, arrest warrant had it in his pocket when bringing her to the inquest so they knew that they were going to arrest her and the defense was arguing that they just purposefully didn't arrest her so she could testify at the inquest hopefully incriminate herself and then that would be used in the trial and then they just would arrest her right after which they did okay so they found a loophole but did it fly well By keeping everything seemingly voluntary, Lizzie, they argued, had been in a way tricked into giving testimony of her own free will, which really wasn't. Uh, She was more of like a spider trapped under a glass. She had nowhere to go. The point was whether inquest testimonies are generally admitted, and they were. But it was also about whether the practice itself was right. And so this was like a very interesting kind of Hail Mary that the defense was trying here was that, yes, sometimes it's it's allowed, but it shouldn't be. I wonder, well, I guess we should find out if it worked first. I, I, I was going to say, I wonder if this is an important precedent for things like Miranda. Right. And don't forget that this at this point, it was pretty well known that Lizzie had been under the heavy influence of morphine during the testimony, which as the New York Times argued, quote, even if Miss Borden had testified with without coercion, she was in such a condition that she hardly knew what she was about. And that's also important. She could do stuff of free will, but if she's under the influence of mind altering drugs prescribed by a doctor, not of her own accord, is that free will? So eventually the judges came to their decision and Chief Justice Mason stated that though she had not been under arrest at the time of the inquest, she was as effectually in custody as if the form- formal precept had been served. And he continued, if the accused was at the time of such testimony under arrest charged with the crime in question, the statements they made are not voluntary and are inadmissible at the trial. The common law regards substance more than form. The principle involved cannot be evaded by avoiding the form of arrest if the witness at the time of such testimony is practically in custody. So essentially, Lizzie's inquest testimony, they decided, was inadmissible as evidence because... Though she wasn't under formal arrest at the time, she wasn't far from it, and she knew it, and the police knew it, and they purposefully made things so that she would testify, and 
again, it's police possible-ish misconduct. It makes things cloudy, even if they're not doing things with bad intentions. Well, and certainly if they had the arrest warrant written up already when she arrived. uh, In his pocket, yeah. Yeah. So the defense celebrated and Lizzie wept. Reporter Joe Howard wrote, she couldn't help it. She was nervous, upset, tired out, strained with attention that no man need hope to understand. And when this great wide horizon of relief was unfolded to her, human nature asserted herself. So it must have indeed been an insane relief for Lizzie that this obviously damning testimony would not be allowed to be presented to the jurors. Sure, if she can do better on the stand herself. She's not going to be on the stand. Oh, well, I think this thing's wrapped up then. (laughs) The press and public mostly responded to this ruling in favor of the judges, but those in the legal profession definitely did not. Legal uh, scholar John Henry Wigmore, who would eventually become the preeminent authority on the law in America, was pretty scathing in his response. Quote, Is there any lawyer in these United States that has a scintilla of a doubt, not merely that her counsel fully informed the accused on her rights, but that they talked over the expediencies and that he allowed her to go on the stand because he deliberately concluded that it was the best policy for her, by so doing to avoid all appearance of concealment or guilt, and yet the ruling of the court allowed them to blow hot and cold, to go on the stand when there was something to gain and remain silent when the testimony proved dangerous to use. So basically, they had their cake and they ate it too, and there he definitely had a point. Okay. Um, But so a good day for Lizzie Borden. This was a good day for Lizzie Borden. And still stinging from this difficult blow, the prosecution pressed onward. And this was pretty devastating to them. This is an important piece of their case. Yeah, she's uh, the fact that she's obviously hideously untrustworthy is is the case. Yes, and it's pretty apparent in the inquest that something's going on. I mean, she's still the person most likely to have committed it just by proximity. But there's no, there's certainly shadow of a doubt now. Mm-hmm. Every question mark is bad for the prosecution because you have to be beyond reasonable doubt. And if you have any doubt, I mean, this is a capital case. She could get the death penalty. You don't want to have any doubt. Soon after this, medical examiner Dr. William Dolan took the stand to discuss the postmortem investigation of the bodies. And remember, this is the same guy that apparently lopped off the Borden's heads, boiled him, uh, boiled them on his stove in a lobster pot, according to his son, and saved the skulls for posterity, I guess. You know, just in case and it came up, he'd yeah. have them. Well, but weirdly, he also made plaster casts of the skulls so he could refer to them easily when discussing and examining the wounds that the Bordens had suffered. Oh, so keeping the skulls themselves was just for daddy. I, I mean, if he did all of this before they were buried, why not just throw the skulls back in? But I don't know. I'm not a pathologist. In Dolan's opinion of the various tools found in the Borden home, and it would it was believed that no matter who had perpetrated this crime, the weapon had likely been left in the home because no one would have, like, run out of the home with a bloody hatchet. I guess. I guess. I mean, it depends on the layout of, like, the backyard. Isn't this a pretty big lot? You could... you. you I mean, you, you could throw it in the backyard, but nothing was found in the backyard. Right. So it was believed that the weapon was likely somewhere around the home. 
And um, so this broken handled hatchet was the most likely to have made these particular wounds in the skulls. Dolan also stood firm on the point that he felt these particular blows did not require any more than ordinary strength, which was a very important thing the defense kept on. There's a lot of gender talk, and it goes even deeper later. But a main thing of the defense was that she's just a, a lady. She can't look at look at what happened to these people. She can't do that. A little woman couldn't have destroyed two skulls this way. Yes, a little woman. Yeah, but that's basically the argument, right? Not only women can't do this, but she couldn't do this. Look at these skulls. They're mangled. It's terrible. A woman couldn't do this. Both in sensibility and in strength. Mm-hmm. And all the other medical witnesses agreed that a woman could have indeed inflicted these particular wounds because they weren't extremely deep. And also, in particular, Andrew Borden's skull was very thin to the point where I think in the temple area, you could kind of see the light through it. Like just his skull itself was very thin. That's how his head was. Yeah, his favorite party trick was standing next to lamps. (laughs) Well, just that, you know, there are these huge holes in the skull. It looks so violent. It looks like it takes a lot of aggression and and force. But really, this old guy's skull is just, you know, cracking like a walnut. Hey, who wants to see my brain case? (laughs) Who wants to see old Andy's brain case? Come here. Dr. Edward S. Wood... Yes, his name is Ed Wood. Um, he was a professor professor of chemistry at Harvard Medical School, testified that no poison was discovered in either of the Borden's stomachs, that the broken hatchet could have been the weapon, but there was no 100% certainty, like there wasn't a bunch of blood on it or whatever that was apparent, and that the only blood found on any of Lizzie's clothing from the day sent for examination was a spot of blood that was one three thousand two hundred forty third of an inch wide. So, so extremely small. The tiniest little spot, but mm-hmm. uh, where? It was on one of her underskirts. And in his opinion, it did seem to have come from the exterior of the skirt and soak through rather than from beneath the skirt, the underwear area up. And thus only vaguely came up the in- issue of menstruation. Now, though both the prosecution and defense would have differing but vested interests in discussing whether Lizzie had been on her period at the time of the murders, both shied away from it because, well, it seems like they were just kind of grossed out. There's only a woman's life at stake here. Right. But even Lizzie, I think it was at the inquest, she testified she didn't want to really talk about it, uh, having her period, but she said she had fleas which was like a euphemism at the time for having your monthly. You had fleas. So it's it's presented as this gross thing that you don't talk about even by women to other people. Oh, don't worry. I'm not bleeding from my vagina. I just have parasites. Yeah. So I'm going to lock myself away for a week. But you, you say that as a joke, but like she'd rather say something like she had fleas, which everyone knows what that means, right? They're not thinking she has actual fleas, but she'd rather say that than say I was menstruating. Like, it's that taboo. Well, she doesn't want to be put in the, in the wigwam separate from the rest of the village. <laughs> I guess. Upon discussing the bucket of bloody rags found in the Borden cellar, Robinson said, quote, It is agreed that the pail contains the napkins which had been worn within a day or two by the defendant, 
ordinary monthly sickness, and as to that fact, that is all we propose to put in. We do not care to go into the details. It is also agreed that the sickness ended Wednesday night. And that's all the defense wanted to say. The defense who are trying to save this woman's life, or at least save her from prison. Right. And that's basically where they left it. Um, It's more surprising, as Kara Robinson notes in The Trial of Lizzie Borden, our main source, that the prosecution didn't really dive into the issue either. Um, What about that bucket of bloody rags in the kitchen or the basement? Right. So the defense basically says, yep, it was there. They were pads. She was menstruating. We don't really want to go into it. She was ill. But the prosecution would have even more reason to talk about this and bring it up. Because according to medical experts of the time, menstruation made women vulnerable to criminal impulses, which could explain what made Lizzie just snap and commit a horrific crime like this. Yeah, and that's why we need to keep them out of the White House. Keep keep that hand off the button. (sighs) Folks, he's he's joking, because I would not have married him if he was not. (laughs) But, um people of the time medical experts believed in like menstrual psychosis or menstrual epilepsy where you just kind of snap out of consciousness and i don't know the period would take over or something the period's driving for oh aunt flo's <laughs> driving move over jesus take the wheel <laughs> Despite the question of the bloody rags and the possibility of some sort of psychosis brought on by menstruating, which would explain a lot of things. I mean, obviously, it's not true, right? But if they believed it was true, it could explain why this was so violent, why this happened seemingly randomly, possibly without motive. In a still very 19th century world, this 19th century theory would have helped the prosecution. Yes, but, but both the prosecution and defense decided to just kind of queasily let the matter lie and not pursue it further. In discussing whether other blood spatter would have certainly covered the murderer in perpetrating such a violent crime, that was also uncertain. And I think there's more science about this now, but... Then, at the time, it was kind of argued, it's presumed that a dozen plus axe wounds would cover any killer with blood, but it's also possible that it just didn't. Right. They didn't have anything about blood spatter or trajectory or anything like that. They knew if you cut certain arteries, it would spurt a lot, but maybe you just jumped out of the way. I mean, who knows? Sure, yeah, and and, and there's not a lot of probably arterial damage when you're smashing up the back of somebody's head, uh, although I imagine there's a lot of kind of back spray in the... in the. Um... There were some cuts, I think especially to Andrew, um, but he's at such an angle, he's laying on the couch, and I believe there's a doorway right near where his head was. So you could be doing, I mean, they, they kind of argued, you could be doing this crazy thing where you're kind of Behind in the, the door. doorway in the other room just like, Reaching over like, bloop, bloop. (laughs) Not with those little woman arms. (laughs) Dr. Wood agreed that perhaps the assailant might not have been covered with blood even after these violent crimes, making it more likely for Lizzie to be able to get away with the killings without being drenched. And that that was also seen as an important thing. How did she clean up? If, If the bloody rags are pads from menstruating, where where would she have cleaned up? Where's the evidence of that? Yeah. Or what? If the dress that she burned was bloody, how did she hide it? 
from investigators until the day after or the day of the funerals, you know. So the skulls were once again presented in Did, court. Didn't she leave town at some point? Lizzie? Yeah, with friends. No, she was she was supposed to. Oh, and then she never did. Yeah. So the skulls were once again presented in court, and this time Lizzie was allowed to leave the room and be spared of the horrifying sight. You might remember last time she almost passed out, because no one's expecting the uh, lobster pot boiled heads of your parents to be shown, even if you did kill them. (laughs) It's not, it's, it's a shocking sight. Medical examiner and professor of legal medicine, Dr. Frank Draper, was brought in to establish that the wounds would have could have been produced by an ordinary hatchet in the hands of a woman of ordinary strength. And indeed, the broken hatchet that they were presenting as the likely weapon did fit perfectly into the wounds in Andrew Borden's skull. They, they just showed it to, to everyone. The defense attempted to fit a newer hatchet into the wounds to show that any average hatchet could have made the blows. And they were trying to be clever here. But unfortunately for them, their example weapon actually didn't fit nearly as well. Oops. And so it kind of proved the opposite. Right. Even if even if lots of hatchets would have fit the wounds, they went with one that didn't. And yeah. they, did, they didn't test this first. Well, they couldn't. They didn't have the skulls, right? They're in evidence. And the plaster casts. So, you know, what are you going to test it on? You're just going to hope for the best. And they did not get the best. When a Henry Lee, our friend from all those uh, true crime documentaries. Dr. Henry Lee, one of my favorite pathologists. My wife has favorite pathologists. She has a whole list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zero Wecht. When a Henry Lee or a Zero Wecht show up uh, to, to help out on one of these documentaries, for mm-hmm. example, we see them reconstructing crime scenes and visiting, and they're looking at charts. They have access to that evidence, don't they? They do, and you know, you have to assume that they're getting much better files, right? Um, they might have had measurements of the wounds from the coroner's report, but those aren't going to be exact this just feels like a big risk to take it's in court for the first risk. time. Well, it's it's the same risk from the OJ case. The, the, the gloves. Yeah. yeah, that was from the prosecution to try and prove that they were his gloves. We'll talk about that at some point. But you take these big risks and sometimes they pay off and sometimes they really don't. The final medical expert, Dr. David W. Cheever, who was professor of medical surgery at Harvard Medical School, agreed that the handleless broken hatchet could be the weapon as none of the wounds were longer than three and a half inches, which was the uh, length of the blade as well. So no blade longer than that could have made these wounds, in his opinion. It's a lot of time spent on establishing which one might be the murder weapon when we all seem to agree that the killer picked up a murder weapon in the house and then discarded it. In or at the, the very least, discarded it, yeah. He also testified, however, that any assailant would have likely been covered with blood. He couldn't say that for certain, but he said, yeah, I would assume doing this crime, you'd get covered in blood. Defense attorney Melvin O. Adams asked what Cheever wore for surgeries, and he responded, a linen jacket or a white linen gown, sometimes a rubber apron. And uh, Adams here was trying to show that blood was likely to get all over even the most skilled of surgeons doing one small cut, you know, Uh, never mind an axe-wielding maniac. But I don't think that's true, is it? No, not necessarily, but it does does show that it's just a, a 
like an example, you know, a dichotomy. Well, if a surgeon's getting covered in blood, then someone who is not knowledgeable in what they're doing with a much blunter, bigger instrument doing much more violent things is certainly going to get covered. Sure, but just because a painter wears a smock doesn't mean that painting always covers you in paint. That's true. And to me, this is this is a defense argument. It accidentally kind of opens the door to another possibility. A linen gown, which is what Cheever said he wore, scrubs, basically. A smock. Mm-hmm. Seems quite like something a woman of the time would have worn as an undergarment. And if it was possible to hide this article of clothing in the direct aftermath of the murders and destroy it later, you could just commit this crime in basically your underwear and uh, co- get covered in blood and simply remove this undergarment after or between murders or you you keep it on and then you put a dress over it uh for when bridget sees you in between and then you take it off again to commit the next murder and then all you have to do is get rid of that and clean your skin and your hair maybe see i was thinking of wearing a not thinking of but i was thinking of lizzie wearing a smock or an overcoat or something over the clothes and getting that spattered and blood and hiding it because it'd be quick to take off but this is almost a more sinister image of her stripping down to her under things in the hallway. Well, some have brought up, not without a hint of salaciousness, that the murders could have simply been committed with the perpetrator in the nude. Right. And then they would have only had to clean off their skin between and or after the murders. With maybe some white rags that you then wash in a bucket in the basement. Yes, this could have been accomplished in the cellar that had running water. And it also appeared to be a place that held a bunch of blood covered rags. For what it's worth, our friend Bill James doesn't feel this is a possibility. And this is from his book, Popular Crime. Quote, in a 1975 made-for-TV movie starring Elizabeth Montgomery as Lizzie Borden, it was suggested that she committed the murders in the nude, then washed herself off quickly and redressed before calling down the maid. Again, this seems to be virtually impossible. First, for a Victorian Sunday school teacher, the idea of running around an occupied house naked in the middle of the day is almost more inconceivable than committing a couple of hatchet murders. Second, the only running water in the house was a spigot in the basement. If she had committed the murders in the nude, it is likely that there would have been bloody footprints leading to the basement, and there is no time to have cleaned them up. There isn't enough time for her to have washed herself off and gotten back into her clothes, even if that was all she had to do. Bridget saw Lizzie after the first murder and before the second, if the first murder was committed much earlier, as contemporary authorities believed. She wasn't covered in blood then. She'd have had to clean herself up twice. She wouldn't have gone through. She couldn't have gone through the house to the basement and washed herself off in the basement while Bridget was washing windows without Bridget being aware of that. So he seems to think this just timing wise, this isn't likely, but I don't know. It's Uh, listen, an undergarment or, or being in the nude. I mean, I love the analytical way that Bill James thinks through these things. Mm -hmm. That said, I, I have to say, he, he makes it sound like the theory is that he makes it sound like the murder coats her from head to toe mm-hmm. in blood, and then uh, she's standing in a puddle of blood, and she tracks blood down. The- we don't know how much blood was sprayed no. by this axe killing. And you it- would assume most of it would be on your hands and arms. And your torso, but you're covering that up with a dress. Mm-hmm. If you have anything on your face, you're wiping it off, and then you're going about your day. You see Bridget for a second. 
And when you see dad, you're ducking behind the door, getting naked again and killing him. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. And he brings up that she's kind of this prim and proper lady. Would she really be running around the house naked? But if she, if we're already, if we're supposing she's committing the axe murder. Yeah. She's too prim and proper to do that too. So I don't know. It's not, it doesn't have as much weight as of an argument as his argument about um, the man from the train. Yes, I agree. A few days later, the prosecution attempted to bring another witness to the stand, Anna Borden. Anna was a somewhat distant cousin of Lizzie's who had shared a cabin with her on the ship returning from Lizzie's grand trip to Europe in 1890. Anna had come to testify that Lizzie during this time had told her repeatedly that she did not want to return to her unhappy home. But the defense did not want Anna to testify. Uh, Yeah, I know. And the judges sided with uh, them as well here, determining that Lizzie's comments were, quote, too ambiguous, so that aside from its remoteness, the evidence is not competent. So I guess it depends on where you fall. Would would you want to have your life hang in the balance if you ever bad-mouthed a family member or talked about an unhappy personal situation? Or would this have been yet another example of Lizzie hating her home life and the parents that came with it? Yeah, I think if I was the prosecution, I'd be pretty pissed about things like this being left out because painting a picture of the strained relationships in the house is yeah. really important for i mean that's motive that that is the motive yeah and while i can understand not admitting the inquest even though legally it seems pretty murky on both sides this one i i think there's a little bias going on here because she's just testifying to what lizzie said she's not giving commentary to it no it would be like holding back like oh you can't talk about the disagreement over the uh the dead mother's house or whatever Mm -hmm. other minor witnesses were called to attempt to establish the whereabouts of lizzie and bridget during the morning of the murders one named lucy collett stated that she had been on her veranda between 11 a.m and 12 p.m that morning in view of the borden home and had not seen anyone escape over the fence so trying to kind of point to the lack of an like a outside perpetrator however lucy also admitted that she had not seen one of the police officers climb over the fence with that within that time either which he stated he did hmm. so it seems like she didn't exactly keep a keen eye on the place and could have missed something. This whole trial is just bring up a witness, find out that they have contradicted themselves, yes. dismiss all testimony, move to the next witness. And do it the must same be thing. immensely frustrating because, you know, I mean, these are presented as very, very talented prosecutors. And you know that they've done witness in, um, interviews and everything beforehand. And now they're just contradicting themselves willy-nilly it must be intensely frustrating next came i'm done with this guy (laughs) yeah it's very much that next came eli bence who you may remember as the pharmacist who told police and the inquest that lizzie had come to him just before the murders to request prussic acid so she could clean a seal skin cape which could point to premeditation because prussic acid was also a fatal poison. Did we decide she owned any seal skin capes? She She did. did. She had at least one or two. But the shopkeeper said she'd never been in there to ask for prussic acid before, even though Lizzie said, oh, I do that all the time. Yes. Or no, opposite. Lizzie said she'd never been in there to ask for prussic acid. Yes. 
Yes, and but he said that she said, she, well, I get it all the time for my capes. That's right. And he was like, I'm sorry, I can't give it to you. It seems like maybe just a rich lady <laughs> kind of Karen thing to oh, say. Oh, very Karen, yeah. So had Lizzie been thinking of poisoning her parents before her final violent act? Though the defense objected, the prosecution countered that this encounter was not being introduced to evidence as an attempted poisoning, which would make it much shakier, but rather as an example of of attempt and possible premeditation. Yeah, but no. not premeditation toward the Intent, crime that sorry. happened. Right, but pro- po- possibly that she's thinking of killing her parents and she's trying to think of ways to do it. And maybe she wanted to do it with the poison. She couldn't secure the poison, so she said, well, I got an axe downstairs. This time, the judges agreed with the prosecution, at least to allow the testimony to take place in front of them without the jury, and then allow the jurors to hear it if that testimony did indeed show intent. Other experts were brought in by the prosecution to try and make this point, including a longtime druggist and a furrier who stated that he had never used prussic acid on furs and could think of no reason to. A furrier, so he liked to dress up like a like a cartoon <laughs> horse or something? And, and Maybe, but he also took care of furs. Oh, I see. <laughs> so if Lizzie had indeed requested the acid for her seal skin or said that as her excuse, it wasn't for any commonly known reason or even expert reason of fur cleaning or preservation. However, the judges eventually agreed with the defense that the testimonies were insufficient to show intent, and so this evidence, too, was not allowed to be part of the official record. So we don't have her going and asking for acid. That is not something the jury is going to get to hear. Again, legal experts were shocked by the decision. John Wigmore wrote, What a wonderful web of obscurity the legal mind can contrive to weave over the simple matters. A woman of ordinary knowledge is alleged to have brought prussic acid for cleaning furs, but two men of technical accomplishments are not allowed to say that there is no such use known to their experience. In Wigmore's opinion, the judges should have allowed this evidence and left it to the defense to argue about the more innocent uses of prussic acid for the jury. And there is also this, though owning a sealskin cape was not unusual for someone in Lizzie's position, and she did have at least one or two, to have them out and decide to clean them in the heat of August would have been absolutely unheard of. Because who thinks of cleaning their furs while sweating their ass off in the dog days of summer? Right, you're, you, you're actively vomiting from the spoiled meats <laughs> that you ate last night in Let the sweltering Let me go clean some fur with acid, like... God, that sounds like a terrible day. So the prosecution rested and the defense took over soon after. And after the break, we'll discuss the defense's main witnesses, the final arguments, the tense deliberations, and the verdict and aftermath of the infamous trial of Lizzie Borden. And spoiler alert, her long life of comfort. Oh, yeah. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point 
when you're wrong. That was all fictitious. She stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Welcome back. When last we left you, the prosecution had just rested in the trial of Lizzie Borden for the murder of her father and stepmother, Andrew and Abby Borden. Um, Andrew and Abby, as you uh, know, audience, had been clubbed to death with a hatchet. Um, not 81 wax, but something like something around the... Like 18 and 11. Okay, yeah. So. About, about 30 total wax. <sighs> Um, and the defense was about to take up this case and uh, bring it home after some some pretty brutal procedural decisions uh, for the prosecution. Yeah. And, you know, the defense throughout all of the prosecution witnesses, they're cross-examining. So the pros- prosecution is still going to be cross-examining throughout the rest of this. But now it's time for the defense to bring their own witnesses. And they began with trying to establish that another figure could have been the perpetrator And so they called a series of locals and neighbors of the Bordens to testify. And these people uh, had different experiences, but they had seen strange characters or or noticed odd occurrences in the days leading up to the double murder. Are any of these going to try to point to the uncle as the perpetrator? No, no. It seems to be like a stranger type figure that they're really going for. One of these wily Portuguese. (laughs) Yes. Uh, they, they did ask a question about the Portuguese, for sure, and Dr. Handy's sighting of a strange pale man on the sidewalk in front of the Borden house around 10.30 in the morning of the murders was referenced again. We talked about that first or second episode here. And then a man named Mark Chase described seeing a man wearing a black coat and brown hat sitting in an open buggy in front of the Borden house at around 11 a.m. that same day. So remember, around 11 is when Andrew is said that he likely was murdered. Right. So was this a getaway driver of some sort? Hiram Hiram Lubinsky, an ice cream peddler, said he had seen Lizzie coming from the barn toward the house while on his route, and he's on the street, shortly after 11 a.m., which would corroborate Lizzie stating that she was in the barn during the supposed time of Andrew's murder, and then came in and found him after. Um, yet another witness, Jerome Borden. I, well, I, I just want to say that the time window there is so tight, mm-hmm. and I think people's sense of time was probably not that accurate in 1910. Mm -hmm. You're not looking at digital clocks constantly every second of your day. You don't have a phone in your pocket. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. When someone says, oh, it was definitely 11.03 when I saw Lizzie. I don't know. Yeah, give or take a few. Another witness, Jerome Borden, who was a cousin of Andrew's, testified that he was able to enter the home the day after the murders by just walking through the front door, which suggested that the front door's lock was not secure. And possibly could explain why it had been stuck or locked when Andrew returned to the house the prior morning. So maybe the thing was unlocked and that's how someone got in or, you know, 
it's just adding more question marks, I guess. Yeah. Another man, Joseph LeMay, testified that on August 16th, he had seen a man sitting on a rock near his home in Steepbrook, muttering, poor Mrs. Borden, under his breath. The man, said LeMay, had a, what appeared to be blood spots on his shirt. He didn't think to stop this man. Poor Mrs. Borden. Well, LeMay tried to speak to the man, but he only could speak French. He was from French Canada. Except for poor Mrs. Borden in English? (laughs) I guess he understood. I don't know. Uh, But when he tried to speak to the man, the man stood up, lifted a hatchet from the ground by his side, and shook it at him. So LeMay countered by brandishing his own hatchet at the man in defense. He just had it at the ready. That's that's great. This is why you got to carry it with you. And then the man turned, leapt over a wall, and disappeared into the woods. I see why they had trouble finding a murder weapon. You you just can't take a step without tripping (laughs) over a hatchet in this county. Well, like, the Bordens had a box of hatchets. There's just something, I guess people used a lot and speaking of mysterious hatchets fall river was shaken by the appearance of one that could have proven to be the murder weapon right in the middle of the trial on the afternoon of june 15th a group of boys were playing baseball on third street and were climbing up to the roof of john crow's barn to retrieve a lost ball that they had hit up there when something far more interesting was found, a weather-beaten shingle hatchet with a three-and-a-half-inch blade. Exactly the kind that was thought to have made the wounds in the Bordens. Or at least the right size. Mm -hmm. The hatchet retained a slight coloring of guilt, indicating uh, G-I-L-T. I I was going to say, what do you, what is, does that mean blood? What do we mean? G-I-L-T, indicating that the hatchet was at one time used as an ornament or was quite new when lost or discarded. Back in the day, if you would buy a new hatchet, it would have this kind of guilt covering on it. Okay, just to make it look fancy. Yeah, shiny, you know. Interestingly, Dr. Draper had previously stated that he had found some similar guilt in one of Abby's wounds upon examination, quote, meaning that the hatchet used in killing Mrs. Borden was a new hatchet not long out of the store. And so it made sense that if premeditated, a new hatchet might have been purchased for the murder to ensure its presence as a weapon. Uh, This is interesting. Where was the roof this was found on? Um, it was on third street and I mean, I, I didn't map it out, but the Borden's home is on second street. So if they do go up like you'd imagine, yeah, then probably the street over. So you walk a street over, you chuck it up onto a roof and you run for the best. Yeah. Nothing was ever proven either way about how the hatchet had found itself onto the barn roof, and it was never admitted into evidence. It never made an appearance in the actual trial. For, so for us, it just remains a question mark. They never really established whether or not this could have been the weapon. Well, I don't think we have enough info on the broken, the guilt level of that broken hatchet <laughs> to, to really make any determinations for ourselves over a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but super interesting. Yeah. The star defense witness was brought to the stand to testify on Lizzie's behalf, her older sister, Emma. Emma was important to the defense because she had a tight alibi, but also could speak to the atmosphere in the Borden home before the murders and Lizzie's personality generally. After all, if Emma didn't believe Lizzie did it, wouldn't that be a good indicator that she might not have? Yeah, a sister would never lie for her uh, closest blood relation. Well, if she disagreed with the act of murder, 
who else but Emma would have as vested an interest in finding the real killer of her father and stepmother? If it had been Lizzie and Emma was mad at Lizzie for doing this, Emma was not involved, then surely Emma would have wanted Lizzie punished for such a horrific act. Of course, this is again if she had no involvement. Reporter Joe Howard described Emma as aged double of her sister. She is a little over 40 years of age and looks it. (laughs) So mean. A prim little old-fashioned New England maiden recessed with an exceeding neatness in plain black with the impress of a Borden in every feature. Uh, Just strong family resemblance. Yeah. Emma stuck to her story with grace and determination, even though Knowlton really deeply cross-examined her. She backed up that Lizzie had had a fine amount of money prior to the murders and so would have very little motivation to kill her parents to gain more. Importantly, she also stated that it was her idea, Emma's, for Lizzie to burn the alleged paint-stained dress and that it was not an attempt to destroy evidence, but rather just a badly timed decision made without thought to appearances. Um, Yeah, just like uh, in the George Harry Storrs case when that guy threw away his two revolvers right after the murder. Mm -hmm. Emma apparently had been mending one of her own dresses and it had spurred her to ask Lizzie about that old dress that Lizzie had been meaning to trash. Emma had been looking for a hook to replace on her own dress. And so perhaps she was hoping to take the one that would have been disposed of from the paint stained dress, you know, like, Oh, well, why don't you just trash that dress and then I'll cut the hook off of it and sew it onto my dress. Um, But this is uncertain. She didn't say this is exactly what happened. I'm just speculating here. Yeah, but she also could have just cut the hook off without Lizzie burning the yes. discarded dress. Yes, but I think it was kind of a thing of, oh, weren't you going to throw that out? You know, and it's just really bad timing, according to Emma. Why would you be burning it? Why wouldn't you sell it, give it away? It seemed it seemed like this is something Lizzie would do. And we'll get into a, a testimony that talks to that, but... Um, Emma also agreed that there were some tensions in the home, yes, especially because of the whole real estate fracas, but nothing that would prompt a murder or double murder. Or prompt me to say, call my mother-in-law Mrs. Borden for the last five years. (laughs) Well, Howard said of Emma's performance, she she stood with perfect self-possession on the stand, answered with deliberation and decision every question, and met the skillful cross-examination of Mr. Knowlton without defiance, but with an evident determination to have the meaning of her well-weighed words thoroughly understood. As confirmation of the most important points Emma made about the badly advised dress burning, Jennings brought in a house painter named John Gerard, who testified that he had painted the Borden home in May of 1892, a few months before the murder, and that Lizzie had been present for his paint mixing and to approve the test patch of paint made on the house. And so this would explain when the paint stains were made. What was she, how, how, what's the process of of testing the batch? God only knows. Another witness, dressmaker Mary Raymond, swore that Lizzie's Bedford cord dress, which is the the one in question, um, she had made that dress for Lizzie that same May, and it did indeed get paint on the hem, to her knowledge. When Mary asked what Lizzie would do with the dress that this one was going to replace, so an unrelated one to the crime, Lizzie responded that she'd cut some pieces out and burn the rest. So this 
was suggesting that this is something Lizzie would just do. She would just burn her old dresses. Sure, it's better than some poor wearing it. I guess. On June 19th and the morning of June 20th, 1893, closing arguments were heard in the Borden case. This is a pretty quick trial, all things considered, certainly compared to nowadays. The defense stressed Lizzie as the personification of beleaguered innocence, emphasizing a final, ominous entreaty to the jurors. Quote, you are trying a capital case, a case that involves her human life, a verdict which against her calls for the imposition of but one penalty, and that is she shall walk to her death. The prosecution countered with their own summation, acknowledging that while the murders were indeed horrific, they could have been perpetrated by Lizzie just as well as any man. The prosecution countered that it's not that big a deal <laughs> if we kill her. Um... Quote, it's hard to conceive that women could be guilty of any crime, but they are human like unto us. They are no better than we. They are no worse than we. Ladies, they're just like us. <laughs> he went on to say that even some of the most famous criminals of fiction were women like Lady Macbeth. <laughs> and the haphazard nature of the wounds bestowed onto the victims, especially Abby, pointed to a feminine killer as well. The hand that held the weapon was not a hand of masculine strength. Well, no, the evidence didn't say, the experts didn't say that. They said it didn't have to be a hand of masculine strength. Yeah, and he said it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) He finished by stating his own belief that Lizzie had not premeditated Andrew's murder, but rather had been unexpectedly interrupted in establishing an alibi for Abby's killing by Andrew. So this forced Lizzie to off him as well, suggesting... Quote, to him, with the spirit in which Judas kissed his master, that he is weary with his day's work, it would be well for him to lie down upon the sofa and rest. So basically, uh, she's Judas. Yeah, no, I, I got that. <laughs> 30 pieces of silver. Uh, but in this case, she gets, she gets a lot more than that, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. And Knowlton ended with this thundering... Uh, conclusion. What's the defense? Nothing, nothing. I stop and think and I say again, nothing. I submit these facts to you with the confidence that you are men of courage and truth. Rise, gentlemen, rise to the altitude of your duty. Act as you would like to think of having acted when you stand before the the great white throne at the last day. What shall be your reward, the ineffable consciousness of duty done? Only he who hears the voice of his inner consciousness, it is the voice of God himself saying to him, well done, good and faithful servant, can enter into the reward and lay hold of eternal life. So basically, um... Kill this lady so you can go to heaven. Yes. (laughs) That's a lot. After a recess, Chief Judge Mason asked Lizzie if she had anything she wanted to add, which was her right. Lizzie, in her only recorded trial statement, stood and proclaimed in a clear voice, I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. Then Judge, Chief Judge Dewey moved to give the jury formal instructions on deliberation with some additional commentary that I have to believe is unusual for a judge to deliver, to sure. say the least. Quote, the defendant's character has been good, one of positive, of active benevolence in religious and charitable work. This is one of the judges. 
He characterizes he characterized Lizzie's angry complaints about her step- stepmother to her dressmaker as the intense expression of a young woman, not of a philosopher or a jurist. And for the jurors to, quote, consider whether or not they do not often use words which, strictly taken, go far beyond their real meaning. Okay, so he has an idea of what he thinks clearly <laughs> happened or didn't happen. Of the mysterious note Lizzie claimed Abby had received the morning of the murders, Dewey added, quote, What motive had she to invent a story like this? What motive? Would it not have been more natural for her to say simply that her stepmother had gone out? This is just so beyond what I think a judge should be saying to jurors just before deliberation. It's almost like he was working to defend Lizzie. It's a very bizarre choice, and it just went right through. Did the other judges say anything? No, I don't think so. After a mere hour and a half in conclave, which is less than even the notoriously quick O.J. Simpson trial jury, the jurors returned with a final verdict not guilty. Lizzie sobbed with relief. Knowlton and Moody, the prosecution, good sports to the end, congratulated the defense counsel. And Robinson, quote, put his arm around the now strengthened girl, and he pressed close down to her cheek as though a loving father was caressing a much-loved daughter. Who was this? The judge? The no. judge who said all that <laughs> stuff? No, one of the defense attorneys. Reporter Joe Howard wrote, The extraordinary and visible affection between these two persons will always remain as one of the refreshing memories of the trial. Hmm. After her acquittal on June 20th, 1893, Lizzie had the whole wide world waiting for her, but instead she chose to remain in Fall River, the town that had so demonized her. Immediately after the close of proceedings, she told Emma, I want to go home. Take me straight home tonight. I want to see the old place and settle down at once. Robinson told reporters, quote, she had no, she said she had no other place she cared to go but Fall River. And while that was certainly true. She's not a girl of a lot of imagination. (laughs) Well, it was true that she wanted to stay in Fall River, but it seems that the murder house on 2nd Street was not where Lizzie's sentimental feelings laid. Her and Emma pretty promptly moved out of the house and into a larger, more expensive home on French Street at the top of the Hill District, which you might remember was the very place Lizzie had longed to live before the murders and that her father had refused moving to in favor of saving his wealth. Well, was she? I mean, she's probably still not doing... She's not getting invited for a lot of stepping out, is she? No, no, but she got got the house and the place she wanted to get. Lizzie named this new house Maplecroft, but there was something a bit vulgar in the public's opinion about this action. Naming houses in Fall River was definitely unusual, and only the grandest mansions in the area had designated names, and only like a handful of them. But it seems that Lizzie was all about aspirational naming. Soon after the trial, she also changed her name legally from the girlish Lizzie to the more refined Lisbeth and referred to herself as Lisbeth of Maplecroft. As opposed to Lisbeth Borden? I mean, that's just what she called herself, yeah. Lizzie parted ways with many of her previously patronized Christian charities, though I'm sure they didn't exactly welcome her with open arms, so it was probably more mutual than her just being like, ah, forget the charities, you know. Around this time, Emma began to complain of Lizzie's actions, telling her reverend, uh, a reverend Buck, about happenings at the French Street house, of which she strongly disapproved. What does that mean? 
Rumors swirled about a fine-looking young man named Joseph Tetralt who worked at the, as the Borden's coachman. Ostensibly, he was suspected to be one of Lizzie's lovers. And Lizzie also developed a close friendship with actress Nance O'Neill, which thoroughly scandalized Emma's delicate senses. Of course, because she was an actress, or because she thought they were lesbians. I, th- I mean, I don't know, but I think probably because of, her, I mean, actresses and, and actors were still kind of looked down upon at this time. And of course, there have been rumors about the nature of Lizzie and Nance's relationship, if it was indeed a, a lesbian dalliance. But at the least, the friendship caused Lizzie to tr- throw some extravagant actors parties full of champagne and merriment that really flew in sharp contrast to Lizzie's previous temperance work. <laughs> so now she's, she's throwing keggers. Oh, fantastic. This whole vibe was the last straw for Emma, and Emma moved out of Maplecroft in 1905, never to speak to Lizzie again. Wow, because just because, like, killing mom and dad was one thing, but you're having too much fun. I, I mean, if she even thought that she killed her parents, yeah. And the, the rest of their shared friends soon followed Emma's example. So though she was relatively isolated in a town that still regularly published articles about the Borden murders and speculation about Lizzie, Lizzie remained in Fall River for the rest of her days. She had a special uh, affection for her Boston Terrier dogs. She even built a special raised seat for them to ride in in her Packard. (laughs) She befriended the children of her domestic staff and neighborhood kids and was known as a kindly older woman who would treat the kids to ice cream and birthday gifts that would be from Auntie Borden. And also we're pretty sure she murdered her parents (laughs) with a hatchet. Aside from dark rumors without substantiation, not many people had negative encounters with Lizzie through to the end of her life. Lizzie Borden, Lisbeth Borden of Maplecroft, died quietly at Maplecroft on June 1st, 1927. She was laid to rest, as per her instructions, at her father's feet at Oak Grove Cemetery, just two miles from the Second Street house. And Emma Borden joined her in death just 10 days later. Lizzie never publicly commented about the trial, nor the murders through her dying day. And Sean, I'll end uh, this section before we get into theorizing where we began with Bill James's analysis. James wrote that it was almost impossible to think Lizzie had done it, and yet it seemed impossible that she hadn't. So where did he end up landing? For what it's worth, James settled in the not guilty camp. In Popular Crime, he wrote, quote, I believe that in, an, in a modern investigation, Lizzie Borden would have been almost immediately excluded from suspicion because a modern investigator would know immediately that the perpetrator would have to be covered with blood spatter. Hitting a person in the head with a hatchet causes blood to squirt everywhere. In a modern investigation, this would have been one of the first facts of the case, and this would have taken the investigation away from Lizzie Borden within a matter of hours. Well. So, Sean, what do you think? Well, the blood, I guess, is our main issue, but I I don't know that it presents more of a problem than an outsider and possibly stranger hiding in the house Mm -hmm. for the time between the two murders. Well, there are two inhabitants of the home moving around in there, Mm -hmm. uh, besides the two victims. So... For me, I don't think that we know what happened, and and uh, frankly, I think it's probably good 
despite what I'm going to say next, I think it's probably for the best that Lizzie wasn't convicted of this crime, because I think there's definitely uh, more than a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. That said, I think she stripped down to her underpants and killed her parents. Mm -hmm. Why? Why do you think she did it? Because I think that it's the most likely, I still, nothing about this has changed the fact that I think it's the most likely course of events given where everyone was and the time between the murders and um yeah given given that stuff i think it'd be so weird to enter a house to randomly kill two of the four people in the house with a period of like half an hour to 45 almost an hour between the murders Mm -hmm. that's weird yeah and I don't know how to explain that. I can explain Lizzie doing the crime. I can't explain exactly how she gets away. I, I, you know, uh, you think it's a hundred percent more likely her than Bridget? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, because we believe the Irish in this house <laughs> and the Portuguese. Man, but, such a bad rap. But at also, this time. but also because well, Bridget's testimony sometimes contradicts Lizzie's testimony. Lizzie's testimony never contradicts Bridget's testimony. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that makes me think Bridget's telling the truth and Lizzie's lying. Also, we know Lizzie's lying sometimes because she contradicts herself right. constantly uh, in the portion of this investigation she does speak for. So, um, yeah, th- that's the other thing. She's just so crazily unreliable. And I understand she's on drugs. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that she's just the person in this case who says the most suspicious, conflicting, and untrue things. For me, I think I think there's a, a major piece that we're missing. I mean, obviously there are a lot of pieces, right? But I think a that couple there's pieces of skulls, first of all. <laughs> I think that there's something big that we don't know. And that is and it has to do with motive. Um I think there first of all, I think if she didn't do it herself. She knows who did. She was involved. She might have let someone in the house. I mean, many people have speculated over the years that she hired someone. Right. I don't know what. I don't know if that makes it any easier for me to. And I'm not saying it's necessarily the truth. I'm saying she she's involved some way. She could have done it. I'm saying if if we know she physically could have done it, then why would you subscribe to a theory that puts her in guilt, but also because we have of to all get the timing stuff, probably. Yeah. yeah. All the questions of the blood spatter and the cleaning and all that. I think it's, I think it's most likely she did it or she was involved somehow, but I think that we're missing a piece having to do with her motive. While I think that a lot makes sense. And, and she, you know, some people have argued, well, she didn't, you know, kill her parents and then go on a spree like the Menendez brothers, right? But well, she did buy that big well, old house. I mean, house. after after the you know she got out of prison, she gets acquitted and everything. She does, she does stay in Fall River and and make this purchase and and this statement really that is so much what she always wanted. She always wanted to live in the hill. And be the the society maven and stuff. And unfortunately for her, she 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 was damned if she did, damned if she didn't. Because if she made this this murder happen because she wanted to to live a more free life, she got freedom. But 
at the price of friendship and and other relationships and like who are you going to spend the freedom with unfortunately for her it was like her dogs in the car and the neighborhood kids that she would give ice cream to right but if she got that freedom by killing two people it's hard to no i know i'm, I'm saying unfortunately for her. for her if that's what she was trying to do right i think she had aspirations she had wants maybe andrew held her back he from definitely from, did well he definitely did from being like her fully social self and and getting a full uh, living a full life in that sense and she might have resented him from missing out on opportunities to socialize and and get married and and live the life that she expected to live but i think i think there must be something else at play here and there's speculation that andrew is going to take them out of the will and it, and a, they a had, knives out if you will yes and they had just found that out um because he weeks earlier and i think that's this is an important thing weeks earlier he had um given them the money for the place that he had given them that's right to replace what they felt was their property that he had basically given to Abby's sister. Yes. So they had this money from that, right? So he might be feeling, well, then I give them less in the will or whatever. I take them out of the will. They're they're being even bitchier to Abby and this this should show them. And maybe maybe he said something. Maybe he said something like, well, you know what? If you keep acting like this, I'm taking you out of the will. Or when Uncle John visited, they're sitting down at breakfast and and... Andrew says something to that effect that Lizzie overhears. Maybe that's the catalyst. I think that there's something that we're missing that triggered whatever happened. Because, you know, they've been going on for five years since this original real estate brouhaha. Right. In this tense house for five years. But something has to make things boil over. And I think we're missing that. Maybe there's something weird going on in Andrew and Lizzie's relationship that, of course, has been speculated on. You mean like abusive? Abusive. Or incestual. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's something else there. I think that Emma, if Lizzie did it, I think Emma knew, at least afterward. I don't know if she was in on any plan. Maybe Lizzie just took it upon herself and then emma came home like what did you do Mm -hmm. you know and lizzie was like well you were gone so i thought it would be good for you if i did this good witness in court though right but i think it it speaks a lot to me that emma within 10 years basically moves out of the house that they share together and never speaks to lizzie again even though i don't know if I, i should have looked into if emma stayed in fall river but i know she didn't go far and she's buried next to Lizzie. So she's buried in Fall River. Something had to have happened. And I feel like it's more than just Lizzie partying. You know, maybe that's the final straw. But Emma com- might come into this knowing what Lizzie did. Either being for or against it. But it's too late now. Lizzie's my only relative left we have the opportunity for all this freedom that we both wanted. Oh. But now look at what Lizzie's doing. She's acting vulgarly. Mm-hmm. She's causing scandal. She's causing, you know, eyes to be put on us. And, and this is not what I wanted. This is not what I signed up for. I'm done. Because some, this is her only relative, close relative, left. She has cousins and stuff. But this is, 
this is it. And to decide not to talk to that person again for more than 20 years, something had to have happened. And I feel like the tension might be from Lizzie did this rash, insane thing. Emma had to cover for her because she's the mommy. She always has to cover for Lizzie. But seeing how Lizzie flaunts certain things, it's just the last straw for her. So I think that kind of adds up. And I think Lizzie was not a dan. If, if she did this, she was not a danger to anyone else besides those people. I think that's pretty clear from her actions later. Some people just uh, uh, kill as, people. As long as no one else became a financial obstacle to her, well, I guess. I don't even know if it's financial, but like, you know, Emma clearly disapproved. They must have had fights. Lizzie didn't never do anything to Emma. Yeah, she had nothing to gain from Emma's death. Well, she would have all of the money. It wouldn't be split 50-50 yeah. if that was really all that she was going for. I think there was something else at play with her parents, or especially Andrew, that we don't know, and that maybe only Lizzie and or Emma knew, and and that really triggered everything. Um, so yeah, I think I think she's. It's most likely she did it, or was involved, but probably more likely that she actually committed the crime. And do you think she did it? I don't think she was a danger to society. Do you think she did it in the nude? At the very least in her underwear. And again, underwear is like a light sundress nowadays. You yes, know, yeah. it's, it's like a linen dress. It's like a, a bathing costume. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think Emma probably knew at some point, probably right after the murders, if, if she did do it. And that just started a tension between the sisters that never really got resolved. And I think, even though I think she probably did it, I would have acquitted her too, because I don't think it, there was a lot of reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, for her, it's for her gain that the, the judges were so biased. I mean, the way they acted in some of the decisions they made, and especially at the end, it was shocking. But the trial, the tr on both sides, it just wasn't very legit. And so, yeah, you can't put someone in life in prison or on death row without proving things without a reasonable doubt. So I, um, I think the trial went correctly in terms of like legal legality, but I still think she did it or was involved. The inquest testimony alone is just, it's so hard to square that with, mm -hmm. because no one says that Lizzie's crazy or mentally incompetent. Well, I know she's on drugs all the time, basically. Well, but. and when they get the chance to with the, you know, the menstrual psychosis or whatever, menstrual epilepsy, they shy away from it. So that's to their detriment, of course. Right. But, but so I just don't square her weird answers in that inquest with anything except being a scared murderer she's and a bad liar. super high, Sean. I've been on morphine twice um, both in the hospital. Don't don't worry. I'm not. I don't know. Sherlock Holmes doing opium in a den somewhere. Nor is she a Civil War <laughs> hero, <laughs> losing a leg or something. But both times I was pretty loopy. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, if someone asked me to testify about anything, I would have been like, I don't know. Who are you? Which is kind of what Lizzie said. She was like, I don't know. I don't even know your name. Like that's like I 
I relate to that in terms of having had morphine injected into me before. Yeah, but first she gave several detailed conflicting yeah. accounts of the same period of yeah. time. I don't I don't know. I just I don't know. I think I think she's guilty in some fashion whether it's first or second degree, I don't know. Mm. But I also think that she wasn't a danger to anyone else in society. She got what she wanted, but unfortunately, she did get a, a monkey's paw situation. She got what she always dreamed of, but she lost the people to share that with. And so what's the point at, in the end? It's still kind of baller, though. I like staying in town, the kind of like, fuck them if they can't take a joke uh, attitude it's, of a post-murder Lizzie Borden. I guess. It's baller if you're okay with her being a murderer. <laughs> um, yeah. If I'm she's innocent, it's more baller, but... No, I think it's more baller if she's a murderer, but I don't approve of the murder part. Okay, well, that's good to know. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. No news today. My life has been Lizzie Borden this week. And uh, we've been, you know, really working hard on wrapping this series up with some quality commentary. So we'll do a little news roundup next week if there's stuff to talk about. I, I haven't seen anything too crazy. Not like last month where, you know, aliens were happening and the apocalypse was happening and all that. Um, so, yeah, no news. No news today. Nope. But uh, one last week, we lucked into a five week march. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yay or at least a uh, a five thursday march mm -hmm. so we uh we have one more axe murder story for you next week as well as a saucy little mini-sode uh coming to cap off axe murder month so uh look forward to all that and that's it for this episode of ain't it scary with sean and carrie like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529 and please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us over there on our top couple of Patreon tiers. We appreciate all of our patrons, but we especially love Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie Sean Downs, and our newest top tier patron, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. 
See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.